0: Welcome to the JMD Podcast with me, James Nurse, the journal's social media editor and a paediatrician struggling to find his way in the world of inherited metabolic disease. In fortnightly episodes, I ask guests to explain all manner of topics to me in the hope that I'll finally understand them. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like or subscribe and be sure to tell your colleagues. But for now, settle in for this latest episode on fetal gene therapy. Hello there. So we've had a series of podcasts recently looking at gene therapy in a variety of different disorders, but today's episode will be slightly different as we're almost going to the very beginning and looking at opportunities within fetal gene therapy. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Simon Waddington from the EGA Institute for Women's Health at UCL in London to discuss his recent review on the topic. Simon, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: So it wasn't so long ago that we heard from your UCL colleague, Dr. Julian Barateau, about the history of gene therapy, and he was discussing its potential in urea cycle disorders. That was altering the genes within people. When did the idea of amending the genes of people still within people come about?
1: Probably around the sort of time that gene therapy was considered, really. So, I mean, in in the mid-1980s, there were pioneers in the field of, of gene therapy for inherited genetic diseases, And so these people came to the conclusion that really the best way to treat a genetic disease is to do so before uh, it ever causes any of the pathology. And so the first discussions occurred in around 1985, and pre-protocols were even submitted in the 1990s. So the concept, pardon the pun, of fetal gene therapy has been around for a
0: really long while. And at that point, were they doing other things to fetuses already?
1: So I think it was in 1969, early 1970s, the first fetal blood transfusions were performed. So this was a fetal anemia. And this was done either using a fetoscope or using ultrasound guidance. And that actually has been a mainstay of fetal intervention, obviously, for decades. So yeah, so fetal surgery is a is a really established discipline.
0: So that's the when. We've heard a lot recently about the how when it comes to gene therapy. So I'd kind of like to skip that and go straight to the why. Gene therapy is to my mind immensely complicated without the added obstacle of treating a fetus. They said in the moon landings that we do this not because they're easy but because they are hard. Are we just doing this to see if we can?
1: I don't think so, no. I mean the the reason for doing it is that for some genetic diseases even when the infant is born, they're already showing severe pathology. So in those cases, you might want to try to prevent the damage from ever occurring. So essentially, postnatal gene therapy is just too late. The justifications around the end of the 1990s were also the consideration of possibly, because the fetal immune system is more tolerogenic, the idea that you might be able to avoid an immune response against the transgene that you're putting in. Or against the vector as well. So that was another big driver. And certainly in postnatal gene therapy, immune response against vectors is a problem. So in gene therapy for the haemophilias and gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, quite often uh, patients will receive prophylactic steroid that then is tapered out. And that steroid is there because patients will often have a pre-existing immunity to the virus upon which the vector is based. And so therefore, you're dampening the immune system so you don't get a cytotoxic T cell response that wipes out the gene expression. So if you go really early in utero, then this fetus will not have been exposed to the archetypal virus. So therefore, you would expect that you're not going to get the same sort of immune response as you would postnatally. So there are some very clear justifications for why a fetal approach would be preferable to a postnatal approach.
0: And would that immune issue also play a factor with redosing? Because we've heard a lot about liver-targeted therapies if given in a neonate would need to be redosed actually quite soon. So I presume that would be a big issue with a fetal approach, but would you be able to reuse your vector? Would you have to go looking elsewhere immediately?
1: So the redosing thing, I don't know. It's a more complex question than what initially was considered for gene therapy. So people that have been treated with gene therapy for haemophilia they're still expressing 10 years later. So we're not discussing redosing these patients that are expressing 10 years later. And I think that the more recent data on Zolgensma for spinal muscle atrophy, some of these children are now eight years old and are still showing therapeutic benefits. So one question is, is redosing going to be necessary? We always thought it, it might be because we would expect it to go away, but it appears to be staying level in some cases In a surprising way, which we don't fully understand. But if we take the fact that redosing would be necessary, then it's no different whether your first dose is in utero or postnatal, you're still going to redose, I don't know, in five years' time. One possibility is that delivering the vector in utero, you almost get a free shot because the immune system doesn't respond strongly and generate a strong memory response against the vector. So there is that possibility. However, you have to consider that even by 20 weeks of age, a fetus has a functioning
0: immune system. Okay, so if it is such a good idea. Why hasn't it been the target all along, given what you said we've been doing transfusions for infants since the 1960s?
1: So I've worked on fetal gene therapy on and off for quite a long while. So the first thing is that it was clear that we needed to do neonatal gene therapy and have this established before we could do fetal gene therapy just in terms of recruiting patients, for example. Now, neonatal gene therapy is definitely a thing. You know, Zolgensma is being given to thousands of kids. The question then is, what is the right disease? So you want a disease where it would benefit by going even earlier than neonatal delivery. And to that end, I think that spinal muscular atrophy actually seems to be a good candidate. And the reason that I think this is the case is that, kids that are treated around six months of age, they show some very impressive improvements in motor schoolers. But when they're treated at a few weeks of age, they do a whole lot better. But even those that are treated a few weeks of age, they still show some motor deficits. And that indicates that maybe if you go even earlier still in utero, that would work. The other advantage about spinal muscle atrophy is that you can get a a genetic diagnosis because you can diagnose the mutations in the SMN1 gene and you can look at the number of copies of the compensatory SMN2 gene. So here you can get a prenatal genetic diagnosis. In fact, some of the infants that were treated in the first weeks of life, some of them actually were genetically diagnosed in utero. So the main problem is trying to find the disease that really would benefit from fetal versus neonatal gene delivery. And the really difficult thing is being able to obtain a diagnosis early
0: enough. I mean, before we move on to that issue around diagnosis, has this been done in practice yet? Is it is it a purely a theoretical idea or has anyone... I mean, I know we've seen enzyme replacement therapy given in infantile Pompey, but has anyone given a gene therapy in utero yet?
1: Never been done, no. Now, um, there's been in utero stem cell therapies and those extend back by three decades. So certainly... A close thing to gene therapy has occurred. Never actually has there been vector injected into a human fetus.
0: And just purely from an ethical standpoint, we're obviously treating one person inside another. We've got very interesting perspectives on fetal rights. Is that potentially an issue? Obviously, this parent is going to want this because that's why they're doing it. But is there an increased risk to the mother? Are we worried about any impact of delivering a gene therapy to one person inside another person?
1: I don't think that gene therapy is necessarily any different to other fetal interventions, in that whatever the fetal intervention is, you've got to consider the health of the mother as well. So that's a given. I don't think that there are any specific considerations that make gene therapy different to other therapies. I mean, certainly some of the vector is likely to leak out into the maternal circulation. Whether this is the problem or not, I mean, it, it seems as if it would not be a problem, because the mother is likely, in some of these diseases, to be a heterozygote anyway. So therefore, a little bit of gene therapy probably isn't going isn't to harm them. Obviously, there is the, the, the possible effect on the pregnancy in terms of, of preterm birth. But then again, there's, there's a risk with amniocentesis, for example, of preterm birth. I mean, that brings me to another thing that we have discussed, that might it be sensible rather than doing fetal gene therapy? So you've got a, a fetus that's been diagnosed with spinal muscle atrophy. They are 32 weeks, 34 weeks of gestation. They've received the diagnosis. Um, concerned about doing fetal gene therapy, so one possibility could be that you actually deliver the fetus early and then give the gene therapy to the preterm infant, and so therefore you're still catching the disease early, but then you don't have the attendant complications. So this is the sort of thing that I'm kind of wondering whether whether it might be considered by some at some point.
0: And would the vector itself be a problem for the mother? Well, we've talked about immune response and people having seen the vector before if they're an adult. Is that a problem for the mum because she'd be fighting the vector?
1: I mean, you know, one of the concerns is the possibility that the mum might develop an immune response against the vector. And then, for example, her antibodies might cross into the fetal circulation. But that might not be a problem because at that point, the fetus has already had its deep therapy. So it may not be a problem.
0: So we, you talked already about the biggest issue possibly being this need for early diagnostics. And uh, unless we have a diagnosis that's already been made in a sibling, diagnosis in pregnancy might already be too late. It might follow an abnormal anomaly scan, by which point we're already getting sequelae from disease. And that's the whole point of treating early is to prevent these. And if we have diagnosed even preconception, shouldn't we just be doing Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, rather than trying to treat a fetus, where the cost is several order of magnitude more expensive.
1: I mean, I'm talking about diagnosing in utero, like those infants. I think it was called the Sprint trial, so they received a diagnosis in utero. I'm guessing because they had an affected SIP. But of course, if you if you have pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, then absolutely you, you wouldn't even bother with, in theory, with with the complications of treating during the pregnancy. And although, I mean. I am aware that IVF is a is a pretty arduous and horrific process and certainly is not a guaranteed success. But it's one of the discussions that, you know, when people ask about CRISPR-Cas and gene-edited humans and why not gene edit the embryo to correct the genetic defect? actually, there's no point. You just select the embryo that isn't affected.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it certainly seems simpler. And I, I completely agree. IVF is not a simple way to conceive a baby and I'm very aware of that. I mean, so it sounds like, you know, in the right circumstance, it's a good idea. It sounds like the groundwork is there. How far are we from this becoming a reality?
1: So as you mentioned earlier, there is now the enzyme replacement therapy trials that have been done by Tippi McKenzie for Pompe disease. And I think this maps out a trajectory towards fetal gene therapy, because there was always symptomatic management of diseases. And then there was adult enzyme replacement therapy with the ultimate goal that you could do gene therapy and then you didn't have to keep on giving the enzyme repeatedly. So I think this this maps out a trajectory. The other one, of course, is the skin disease where fetuses don't develop sweat glands and also have malformed uh, teeth. And this was work that was performed by Holm Schneider. And this was fetal delivery of a molecule, essentially a protein replacement therapy at the right time of gestation then allowed the foetuses to develop hair follicles. So I, I think these examples of protein replacement therapy, the, the, the natural trajectory is then towards genetic therapies. Because if you deliver enzyme replacement therapy in you might have to do this more than once before the baby's born. Whereas in theory, you can just put the gene in once, and then th- that's it until at least the baby's born.
0: Well, it all sounds... Rather exciting, but it, like so many of the things I talk about, the time frame seems to be a little bit uh, in- intangible. So I guess we'll have just have to watch this space.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, what happened is that um, so people started to get rather excited about it towards the end of the 1990s. And there were proper discussions in, in 1999 around what might be required for fetal gene therapy. And it was just at the point when Jesse Gelsinger died in the, the ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency trial when the leukemias arose in the infants with X-linked severe combined immune deficiency, and when the gene therapy trial for haemophilia and patients developed immune response. So the whole field kind of flatlined for probably a decade, maybe longer. And this was just at the point when fetal gene therapy was just being considered. So unfortunately, it just caught as the wave crashed. But I think that now you've, you've got a generation of obstetricians uh, neonatologists who, who are really starting to understand the potential of genetic therapies and are starting to explore some of the ideas of enzyme replacement therapy, some of the ideas of, of transient genetic therapies too. I mean, you know, as I said in the review, I just wrote, this will be the last time that I write a review until fetal gene therapy happens. But I can see cases now where you could justify it. It takes a will. That's what it takes. It takes a will and it takes, it takes the right clinicians to be able to line this up to do it
0: well i hope you won't have to uh hang up your keyboard for too long then before you get to write that review um well it's been fascinating to hear from you if you'd like to read simon's paper please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal of inherited metabolic disease web pages and search for fetal gene therapy simon thank you so much for your time this afternoon
1: thank you very much indeed thank
0: you and thank you for listening until next time goodbye